What would the Chinese do to hobble us if it shades over into a hot war? Basically, we have these megalomaniacs who have goals that are preposterous. They never achieve them, but they cause an enormous amount of death and destruction while they are trying to implement their goals. To think that that is all charitable is nonsense. TikTok is not permitted in China. China has understood probably earlier and better than we have the incredible value of data. Hello, my name is Jay Newman. I'm the host of the Under Money podcast, where we discuss the intersection of power, politics, and corruption. It's my pleasure to speak today with Willem de Vogel. Willem is the chairman of the Jamestown Foundation, and Jamestown is a formidable nonpartisan research organization that focuses on Eurasian security, politics, terrorism, and increasingly the role and goals of the Chinese Communist Party in defining geopolitics and geoeconomics. Americans, and to some extent Europeans, have become increasingly wary of China. But most people have only the vaguest idea of the goals and techniques of the CCP and Xi Jinping. Willem, you may quibble with this, but I view you as one of our foremost experts on China, and you've issued a clarion call. Would you tell us, what is China? How should we think about it? And how would you characterize the Chinese Communist Party and its ambitions? Well, thank you, Jay, for having me on. Uh, you're right, I quibble with you. Um, I'm not an expert, I'm a commentator. And it's a very important distinction to make uh, because there are China experts who have studied the country, the CCP, its people for decades. They have lived there, they speak the language. I don't do any of that. I've only been studying China probably for the last six, eight years. Uh, I probably spent an average of six hours, seven, uh, seven days a week on it. And yes, I have in consultation with all these people from various walks of life, but who know China, I have concluded that China today is the most evil, most relentless, most totalitarian opponent that the United States has faced since its declaration of independence in 1776. And I think that we need to wake up. China has been in a cold war with us for decades, and we've been asleep. I've heard you say many times that uh, it's foolhardy to ignore the words that dictators and autocrats use to describe their goals. Hitler told us exactly what he intended, so did Stalin. How does Xi Jinping describe his intentions and what he envisages, not just for China, but for the U.S. and for the rest of the world? You know, what is uh, wonderful about Xi Jinping is there are a lot of things we don't know, but what his goals for China and the world are is very well known. He, he has been very vocal about it. He has a lot of, he's made a lot of speeches. He's issued papers. Sometimes his speeches take six years before they're published, but when they're published, they're clear. And I can uh, actually refer your audience to a fantastic article written by Matt Pottinger and two other gentlemen, which basically in foreign affairs, which says Xi Jinping in his own words. But if I were to sum up what Xi Jinping is saying is, he wants China to regain its historical position in the world by 2049. 2049 is the 100th anniversary of the communist takeover of mainland China. But what does he mean by the regain its historical uh, position? This is not clearly a communist China position, but for millennia, China has believed that it was the Middle Kingdom, which is a very benign description of what really the Chinese felt. They were at the top of the pyramid in the world, and they, they thought that they were the rulers of the world, exaggerating a little bit. But basically, China wants to dominate the world order. Xi Jinping makes it clear he wants to reshape the world order. Xi Jinping makes it clear that he is totally opposed to democracy, to freedom of speech, 
freedom of expression. One of the, the most striking things in a very simple document that describes sort of what the party member should do and follow is he doesn't want an independent judiciary. In China, there is no independent judiciary. The party is above the constitution. The party makes out what happens doesn't happen. And, and Xi is following in the footsteps, not only of Mao and others, but he's following basically in the tradition of, of Chinese emperors. What makes him so evil? Well, everywhere you go in China, you see pictures of Mao. Mao is enshrined in the constitution. He says he reveres Mao. Mao has killed more of his own people than anybody ever did in the history of the world that we know of. Probably somewhere between 30 and 50 million people. Some people put the number higher. That's pretty evil. But Xi Jinping is evil himself. If you see what he's doing with the lockdowns today in China, that's pretty evil. If you see what he's done with incarcerating Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang, the northwestern province, probably about a million people incarcerated there. Really what he's trying to accomplish is, is, is not clear, except he's trying to get them to give up their religion. He has basically permitted in his country the killing of opponents and to sell their organs for profit. What I just said is the Chinese kill young, healthy people, Falun Gong members by and large, and their hearts, lungs, livers are sold for tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes close approaching $200,000. That's the regime this man is leading. In the lead up to the 20 party of Congress, which was in October, where he got appointed an unprecedented third term, on the way there, a lot of his people around him who didn't agree with him were el eliminated. By eliminated, they were the, uh, so the last purge shortly before the Congress was of six people. They were arrested. The next day they were on trial and the following day their sentences were, the most benign sentence for the six was 14 years in jail. This man is absolutely ruthless. And so when he says he wants to dominate the world, one thinks this is, this is ridiculous. How, how the hell can you dominate the world? Well, it was ridiculous for Hitler to try and, and attack all of Europe and, and Russia at the same time. It was preposterous, but he did it. Okay. Napoleon tried to, to conquer Russia. Ridiculous. So basically, we have these megalomaniacs who do, who have goals that are preposterous. They never achieve them, but they cause an enormous amount of death and destruction while they are trying to implement their goals. So why do I say China is in a cold war with us? Well, if you go back 2,500 years and you read what uh, Sun Tzu, the um, philosopher and, and military strategist said in China, he said, basically, um, war is a series of actions designed to have your opponent submit to your will. And what China is trying to do is exactly that. They're trying to, and by the way, Clausewitz, the German uh, strategist from 150 years ago, said the same thing. So basically, China... When it says it wants to dominate us, that's a hostile objective. Now, are they executing on that objective? They are. Well, how so? Well, basically, ironically, China publishes from time to time incredible documents. And probably the most important document to focus on is a book that was published in 1999 called Unrestricted Warfare. It was written by two Air Force colonels called Wang and Zhang, Zhou. In 1991, when the Soviet Union ceased, ceased to exist as a communist-led country, that sent basically shivers up the spines of the Chinese. It was the failure of a communist state. So they, they analyzed it in, in, in depth, what were all the things that went wrong and how could they avoid a similar fate? And so basically, Unrestricted Warfare was published eight years after the demise of the Soviet Union, which Putin always called a geopolitical demise, but the Chinese thought of it as an ideological demise. And basically in unrestricted warfare, which has a by byline, by the way, that says win without fighting, the authors suggest literally hundreds of different ways in which China can weaken its opponents and ultimately replace its opponents.
we can talk about some of the things that they're doing, but I think this is why I say China has a goal that is adversarial to us. It's implementing that goal, has been doing so for 20 years because they're not shooting at us. It's not a hot war, it's a cold war, and that's where we are. Bill, it'd be very helpful if you would give us some examples of the techniques that China is using in terms of unrestricted warfare to disadvantage the U.S. and to weaken the U.S. and to enhance its position. Well, there are many, but I'll try to um, just highlight a few. The guiding principle is to try to take an asset, a U.S. asset or Western asset or a democratic country's asset and turn it into a weapon. A quick example is Osama bin Laden did exactly that when he took four airplanes and flew them into buildings. Okay, That's how you do convert an asset into a weapon. What has China done? Well, coming back to how evil they are, fentanyl is a very effective painkiller used in many hospitals on a daily basis around the world, including the US. But if you get the dosage of fentanyl wrong, it kills people. China has a surveillance state. It is the most totalitarian country ever that existed in the world. Why? Because today's artificial intelligence and fast computers and smartphones all over the place and, and cameras all over the place, you, you can surveil a population in a way that has never been done before. That system would catch in China the drug lords who are selling the ingredients to make fentanyl to the cartels, which then get it to America, where last year, according to the CDC, about 100,000 people died. Okay, China can stop that. I have spoken to lots of people in drug enforcement, etc. We don't have black and white proof that, that China can't stop it. But as when President Trump brought up with Xi Jinping that, hey, we have this fentanyl problem, you should do something about it. And Xi Jinping's answer, supposedly, I wasn't in the room, was, well, we have no drug problem, okay? And it is clear that China doesn't have a drug problem. So that's one example, okay? And it's, it shows by, by killing Americans, particularly young Americans, that causes havoc, weakens us. It also means that we spend a lot of money on, on, on finding drug lords and what have you not. So it, it hurts us every which way. Another example, international institutions can be a cause for good or for bad, in, I think, 2001, China was allowed to, to join the World Trade Organization. And it joined us at that point in time, 21 years ago, as an emerging market, which it probably was. Now, why do I mention that? Because emerging markets have all sorts of financial advantages over established economies. Okay, What China has done very cleverly is it has bought friends around the world and in sufficient numbers so that when the issue is brought up that China should now, which is the second largest economy in the world, should now be recognized as a full-fledged economy and shouldn't have all these emerging market advantages, that does not pass because there are enough countries that will vote with China because they have been bought by China. Okay, That's an example. Uh, there are many more, Jay, but basically the last one I want to mention is TikTok. China has understood probably earlier and better than we have the incredible value of data. And if, in fact, you look today at the companies that gather data, they have the markets the, the, with you. I, I wouldn't say that Apple Computer is a data gatherer, but, um, you know, Google and Facebook and all of these companies um, have enormous market caps because they control so much data and data is so valuable. Okay. Well, data has obviously commercial value. You can target advertising to get somebody to buy a new tennis racket, a new watch, a new car. But data can also be used to get insights into people's thinking and then start to influence that thinking. So what China has done is created an app called TikTok. We've all heard of it. And TikTok very often has very funny little videos and particularly young kids love to look at TikTok. TikTok is, is the fastest growing app in the world. It's got over a billion daily visitors to its app. Okay, A lot of them are young people. And it is so sophisticated that basically 
TikTok can drive people in particular directions. China doesn't care whether people in America are on the right-hand extreme or on the left-hand extreme, as long as they are at extremes, because that creates havoc inside of America. So TikTok knows exactly, if you and I are both on TikTok, maybe you get driven one way, but I get driven another way. And by the way, an incredible feature of TikTok is for all these billion people users of TikTok, ByteDance, the country, the company that controls TikTok, has an individual psychological profile of each of these people. So TikTok, an asset, because it sells lots of advertising, is also a way of propagandizing, of influencing. And the influence on young people is so enormous that the Wall Street Journal article published a, a study that said that uh, the, a young cohort from 17 to 25 that are daily users of TikTok have a suicide rate that is double the cohort that does not watch TikTok. Wow. So there you have three examples of how China is fighting this this Cold War against not only the U.S., but primarily the U.S. and the rest of the West. Yeah, the other, the uh, there was talk uh, fairly recently about either banning TikTok or controlling access to the data. And if I recall right, that came to nothing. And in fact, all the data that's collected uh, by TikTok, including apparently uh, the keystrokes that people use on their, on their phones and their computers to access TikTok, are recorded and are accessible in China. And in fact, TikTok is led by uh, very senior uh, c senior officials who are part of the national security establishment. Why haven't our policymakers really put a stop to this? It'd be very easy to do. And I'd just like to point out that, you know, again, that TikTok is not permitted in China. The, the Chinese government, Chinese Communist Party won't let its own people, its own young people use the TikTok app. Well, that's a very important uh, thing that you added to TikTok. Essentially, um, I have to be cynical in giving you an answer why we have not yet succeeded in uh, India, by the way, has banned TikTok. OK, it's not difficult to do. You just have to do it. TikTok is very popular with young people. And I think a lot of politicians are courting the votes of young people. And so they don't want to disappoint their young followers, OK, who hopefully when they make them followers, are lifelong voters for them, whether that be Republican or Democrat. Okay, that that's one reason why. But I think there is an, also a more fundamental reason. Whenever people describe the danger of TikTok, they say it collects data, and then they stop. There's never an explanation on television that that data is used to manipulate people in nefarious ways, okay? And so when these young people who love, which is the biggest cohort that uses TikTok, when they hear that their data, quote unquote, is collected, frankly, they shrug their shoulders, you know? So they know that I went to see Annie last night, you know, big deal. And they, they know what, what Coca-Cola I drink or what drugs I use, whatever. The kids don't care, but they don't understand that that is going to be used against them in very subtle but very effective ways. Yeah, it's very subtle and very effective. And, uh, and the Chinese, of course, uh, have been masters of uh, propaganda and controlling the flow of information and influencing their own population and others. One topic I wanted to ask you about is this idea which you've alluded to, which is elite capture. So the, the Chinese have managed to capture uh, the youth, the youth of uh, America uh, through TikTok, but the Chinese have also created a culture of dependency by providing certain products very cheaply, notably labor. Uh, functionally, China has sold slave labor, the labor of Chinese people, underpriced it for decades and decades to bring more and more production uh, into China. Uh, and it was telling to, to read recently that uh, uh, Tim Cook decided that Apple finally recognized that it, it faced a risk of 
of doing too much work in China, assembling too much product, buying too many parts in China, and they were going to start cutting back. But but Apple is just one one example. There are dozens and dozens of examples of American companies and products that uh, the Chinese have essentially uh, taken over the market for. Could you discuss the idea of elite capture and where that fits into the strategy? Start with the for-profit elites, okay? So many companies believe that they can do business inside China and therefore show bigger growth and better results. Little do you hear ever in, in the regular press or anywhere else that if you invest in China, you need actually government permission to take a dollar out when you want to. Little mention is, there's more mention today about how when companies invest in China, that the intellectual property can be stolen and copied. But what basically a lot of businessmen to this day don't understand who have never done business in China. There's no rule of law in China. So if a contract is not adhered to that you entered into tough luck, okay, the Chinese only adhere to contracts if it's if it's to their advantage to adhere to it. So basically, the most amazing thing that I find is that all these American companies and Western companies that make these investments in China, they actually what they end up doing is exporting their manufacturing capabilities to China, which is hurting America and the, the American workers, but they never capture all that much of that consumer market that they all dream about of the 1.4 billion. The Chinese, again, are very smart. So that's one elite capture. Take the academic elite capture, okay? Um, a study came out about a year ago that the 10 largest universities in America over a five-year period had received, I think the number is $960 million in donations, charitable donations from China to these 10 top universities. To think that that is all charitable is nonsense, okay? Basically, the Chinese make those donations for a number of reasons, but one that is pretty obvious, there is more and more people are starting to say we should not allow these very intelligent young Chinese to come and study, particularly in our STEM universities, because when they go back, they disclose things that are helpful to China and don't help us. And the idea 30 years ago to let these students come here, that China would change and become more democratic. Well, that idea obviously can be you know thrown out the window. I mean, that, that, that nobody can, can even come close to, to pretending that with a straight face. So why is, is China is willing to send these students, pay full freight to the universities? Universities love that. But if you also make donations, it makes it virtually impossible financially for the universities to say, we have to stop taking these people. Okay. So now the next thing that happens is these students, all of them have family members in China. And the students are asked by their CCP to provide information while they're in the U.S. or when they go home. Well, if they don't provide information while they are in the U.S., the Chinese, the Communist Party will visit their parents or brothers or sisters or cousins. And all of a sudden, the students in America, Chinese students in America, get calls from China and say, for God's sakes, participate because you know, they're, if not, I'm going to suffer. So they try, and so those American, those Chinese students in America befriend professors, information gets, gets given to the Chinese government, which then can do other things with that information. Politicians, newspapers, everybody, if you look at some of our broadcasting so-called news organizations, okay, take an example, Bloomberg. In 2012, when Xi Jinping was elected to become the secretary general of the party, Bloomberg actually did an expose that said that Xi Jinping's family, particularly his brother, his ex-wife and his daughter, had about $250 million of assets outside of China. Hmm. Within moments of publishing that article, the Bloomberg terminals in China went blank. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> and, and Bloomberg you know, is much more careful these days in the way in which it reports on things. And so basically today, when you when you read from any newspaper, uh, from any news conveyor, 
reports that are filed in Beijing, you know you're only getting a third of the story at best. Okay, those are all elite capture things in my book. So uh, we're, we're facing an enemy, and I accept your characterization that we're in a, a cold war. An enemy with with which we share nothing, no rule of law, no respect for international norms or institutions, uh, willingness to sacrifice millions and millions of its own people to the goals of the Chinese Communist Party. How do we compete with that? Like with unrestricted warfare, where there are hundreds of ways in which they're coming after us, we have to follow hundreds of ways to to go after them. Okay, and. I basically believe that we must do everything we can to win this Cold War. And by the way, I believe we can. So let me first explain why we can and then what we should do about it. China has a couple of built-in problems that the CCP cannot solve. The first one is they're becoming more Marxist-driven driving their their economy more along Marxist lines. There are very interesting reasons for which they're doing this, but the most important one is we have to accept that's what they're doing. And we don't know of any economy that thrives when it is governed from the top down. China did extremely well when Deng Xiaoping opened up and, and let entrepreneurialism thrive. And the Chinese are phenomenal entrepreneurs when given the freedom to be phenomenal entrepreneurs. So basically the first problem that China, China's growth is going to slow very much, if not, and I think actually today, China's growth is negative already. When they publish figures, they always lie. But but when you add up all the things happening inside China, they have negative GDP growth. So that's the first reason. The second problem that there is no way that the Chinese can solve from 1980 until 2016, they had the one-child policy. And what that meant is that when you have the, the pyramid, demographic pyramid, that bottom layer today of people 40 years and younger is roughly half the size it should be. What does that concretely mean? Concretely, that means that in the next 12 to 15 years, China is going to lose 70 million people of working age China is going to gain 230 million retirees. Unlike other countries, and particularly European countries, but even American countries, there's not much of a safety net for retirees in China. It's one of the reasons why China is, is not a big consumer society, but a savings. They save an awful lot because you have to save for your old age. And if you only have one child, you have you know fewer uh, family members to, to, to help you later on. The Chinese, for whatever reason, have never been big believers in being stock market investors. If you saved, the interest rate that you got was not very good, but the, they therefore invested in real estate products. And it is believed that over 70% of all of basically retirement plan, or retirement savings were in real estate products. Well, we know today that China is way overbuilt, way over leveraged, and that their real estate market is falling apart and it is over leveraged. And at the moment, they're trying to cure the problems of their real estate problems by allowing people to borrow more, you know, the developers to borrow more. Adding more debt to excess debt is not going to solve the problem. So that's a second. So you have the, the inflation, you have the, 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 the communist rule, the pyramid problem. And then the derivative part of that, the old age savings going away. And I think that those are enormous problems. Now, add to this, COVID was going to be the test whereby the CCP and Xi Jinping were going to show that the Chinese system was superior to the Western uh, democracies and capitalist system. Well, even the Chinese who don't have very free access to foreign news they today know that the West has fared ultimately better with COVID than they are in China. And these lockdowns that Xi Jinping is doing, he is doing them for a number of reasons. In the beginning, I was probably in the camp that thought he was doing it to show that he had the political power to control masses of people. And maybe that continues to be one of the reasons why there are still lockdowns. But 
I've become more convinced today that there is a second important element, which is that China, compared to the U.S., has far fewer emergency room beds. And if they didn't have the lockdowns and because they don't have a good vaccine and very few people are vaccinated compared to us, there would be an immediate outburst that the lockdowns probably slow down. You'll never get rid of COVID with lockdowns, but you can probably slow down the number of cases per day. Well, basically, if it shows that if they take the lockdowns away and the healthcare system cannot deal with people who have to go to the hospital, it shows that this brilliant system that they have doesn't work. So he's between a rock and a hard place there. So what you're suggesting, it's uh, I'll play devil's advocate that uh, with those frailties, that maybe China is just going to self-destruct and all we have to do is stand out of the way and let it let it do that. Why isn't that a uh, reasonable strategy to pursue? In a way, it seems that except for the CHIP Act, that's what our policymakers are doing because they really don't they don't want to call it a Cold War. They on on one level want to protect our um, our advantage in advanced computer chips. But on most other levels, they're not really engaging. Is are they are they right? Is is this is the idea of self-destruction so palpable and strong that uh, we don't really have to worry about it? I think we we're at a tipping point. Essentially, if we say that we took our hands off completely and the chip act passed, the export controls are on and the less the rest just let it run. Okay, I think under that scenario, China could win its economic warfare against us. You mentioned Apple earlier. Okay. Apple is basically de facto today a Chinese controlled company. 80% of its products are made there, 90% of or 18% of its sales are there. Cook has said he wants to move 20% of production to India, but he said the same thing six years ago and it didn't happen. And I don't think it happened, didn't happen because of incompetence. It didn't happen because China said, don't do it. If we don't act to stop all this nefariousness, economic nefariousness that China is doing to us, we will fail. And although they will weaken themselves, we will weaken, we will be weakened by them more. And so they still get the upper hand. But in addition to that, we have, we haven't spoken yet about Taiwan. Xi Jinping has got Taiwan on the brain. I think the best explanation for his absolute obsession about Taiwan is that he wants to be recognized later on as the emperor who, quote unquote, consolidated the geographic reunification of China. I don't know if that's what drives him. I, I can see why in the 1950s, uh, the mainland CCP did not like Taiwan because that's where the nationalists had fled to their opponents. But basically, we're now 70 years later. Okay. And I think that Taiwan is an embarrassment to the Chinese because it is, by and large, the DNA of the Taiwanese and the, the mainlanders is, is very similar. Um, they speak similar language and uh, they started with the same uh, per capita GDP in, in 1950. And today, Taiwan has got five times the GDP that the Chinese individuals have, uh, the, the per capita GDP. And it's a thriving democracy, which is exactly the anathema to the leaders of the CCP and particularly to, to, um, to Xi Jinping. Now, if we do nothing, Xi Jinping will capture Taiwan one way or another. I mean, we can spend hours discussing whether it's with an invasion, an embargo, creating a fifth column. Anyway, if China were to get its hands on Taiwan, and God forbid they get its hands on Taiwan and get the, the chip production capabilities there intact, I think it will be the end of the role of America in the world. And I think America has a positive role in the world. Some of my cohort, you know, fellow countrymen may not be so sanguine about that, but I do believe that America plays a very important role in the world. But if we let Taiwan just disappear, all of a sudden, the most important ally that we have in the world, Japan, will be hanging out there to dry. I think they will be hurt by China, South Korea, the same fate, the Philippines, the same fate. And then India will, will no longer have faith in us. India supposedly is a non-aligned country today, but frankly, 
they're leaning more in our direction than they are leaning in China's direction, and they have border skirmishes and all of that. India will make common cause with China if we let Taiwan go. And then the Europeans, a lot of them are pretty fackle. I was reading today, Jay, that Germany, which supposedly got religion after Putin invaded Ukraine, has just decided that, yes, we were going to increase our defense budget to 2% of GDP, but no, we're not going to do it right away. Hmm. At the same time, Germany, it's all today, <laughs> announced that they're going to work with the Chinese company that bought 25% of the Hamburg Harbor. They're going to work on other projects in Europe together and control other ports in Europe. So basically, if we let, if we don't stand up to China, we let Taiwan slip away, I think the Chinese will, even in a weakened state, be able to control an awful lot of our partners, and we will be much poorer for it, and they'll be better off for it. So you've um, you've touched on some very important points here regarding Taiwan, and and also the idea that China, through its Belt and Road Initiative, is controlling ports and mines and oil drilling and forests uh, and governments around the world. I think they have the the Belt and Road. I think has relationships with 160 countries, which is basically 160 governments that they're suborning and bribing and attempting to subvert and control. Does the U.S. have the stomach to actually deal with all these initiatives? I mean, I, I read recently that uh, the U.S. is working closely with the Australians who understand very well how dangerous uh, China can be and the Japanese who also understand this. But uh, Will it work? Will will the U.S. In, have the right kind of allies to be able to stem the tide? And will we defend Taiwan if it comes to that? I think the answer to your question hinges on the outcome of two major conflicts in the world today. The first one is in Ukraine. The Ukrainians can expel the Russians from their territory if the U.S. lets them do it. I'm not convinced that we're we, for instance, don't want to give missiles to the Ukrainians that they could shoot from the mainland into Crimea and hit Sevastopol. Okay, We are handicapping, uh, to some extent, the Ukrainians, and it, it's, it's almost cruel. Now, the Ukrainians are very clever and, and have workarounds, etc., and I'm still on balance hopeful that we win that battle. But were we to lose that battle... And were we to lose the battle for Taiwan, then I basically believe all these other countries, the Belt and Road company, countries, will line up with China. And China will, even though it's weak, will basically dominate. When I say dominate, they don't want to invade. They just want to be able to tell people what to do. About us defending Taiwan, it all depends on whether that is tomorrow morning or three years from now or five years from now. I think the single most important thing that we can do today that can be done almost overnight is to announce publicly that under no circumstances will we allow China to take over Taiwan and in whatever form that takeover takes place and control the so-called fabs where all the semiconductors are made. 60% of world semiconductors are made in Taiwan and China needs to import 90% of semiconductors for its use every year. Our iPhones, our television screens, our computer screens, all made in China, but with chips made in Taiwan, okay? So basically, if we tell the Chinese, you won't get your hands on these fabs, we'll sabotage them, they'll be gone. They have to think long and hard about what to do about Taiwan. Now, I think it was utterly clear to me, I, I didn't think that Putin was going to invade Ukraine, because I thought it was a really irrational move to make. Well, he invaded it, but I think I've been proven right. He, even if he tomorrow gets control of 100% of Ukraine, what does he have? A box of rocks. Okay, he, he's got nothing. So will the Chinese take us seriously that we will destroy the fabs? Maybe the Taiwanese would even do it themselves. Maybe sabotage from other people in, in the Far East. It's a real risk for China. Will it stop them from doing it? I don't know. But that's the first thing I would do to help deter. Secondly, we were very slow in arming Ukraine before the Russian invasion. 
let's this time speed up the arming of Taiwan before there is even a sign of an invasion, okay? The more we arm them, the less likely the Chinese are to attack. Now, we are at the moment, our production capabilities in the U.S. are behind. You see articles in the papers saying that we're already having trouble keeping up with, or we can't keep up with replenishing what we're sending to Ukraine. And we also see newspaper articles that were already $19 billion worth behind in shipments of purchases that the Taiwanese are counting on. To put that $19 billion in, in perspective, the U.S. has given Ukraine roughly $19 billion worth of weapons in the last 10 months. I mean, that's an awful lot of weapons that Taiwan should be having by now and doesn't have. Okay. So now, so these are all things that go towards deterrence. The question is now, should we defend militarily, I think is your, your, your question. Should we militarily defend Taiwan? I am in the camp. There are people all over the place on this, and they all have good arguments. I'm in the camp that we have to maintain what is referred to as a strategic ambiguity. Because I look at Europe, and I look at how thin, useless, bluntly speaking, some of those militaries are in Europe. Why? Because they figure the U.S. will come and defend. Okay, Germany had 3,000 tanks in 1991. It's got 260 tanks today. I mean, you know, and, and we have, a, we sometimes have more military men in Germany than Germany has in its own military. I don't want the repeat in Taiwan. And Taiwan, until 2019, half the population was leaning towards trying to become friendlier with the mainland. Okay. So there is this undercurrent in Taiwan that does not resemble the will demonstrated by the Ukrainian people. And so I think it's very important that the Taiwanese have every incentive to, to get ready for their fight, and then they will see whether or not the U.S. participates. The final thing is the U.S. should do everything it can to be ready to participate because usually wars don't start by mutual consent. One party attacks, okay? The other party doesn't want to be attacked. If you ask military strategists, if you, Mr. Military General, were in charge of the Chinese invasion of Taiwan, what would you do with the base in Okinawa, where all the Americans are? What would you do with the bases in, in, in South Korea? Would you leave them alone or would you preemptively take them out too? So my point is, we may have no choice but to defend militarily Taiwan, so we should get ready for it. Just to put it in a framework, because you mentioned uh, the idea of containment. Uh, I think Bridge Colby talks about a strategy of denial. Uh, Matt Pottinger, you, you mentioned, talks about something called constrainment. What's the optimal approach to opposing China? And, and more importantly, what would the cost, the, the near-term costs of that optimal approach be to the American people? I think it's a little bit like the climate fight. We have to do all of the above. So we have to defend Ukraine. We have to deter China from going after Taiwan. We have to do something that I call detect. We haven't talked about the formidable capabilities that China has around the world to infiltrate us. One example, China has a propaganda, a pro-China propaganda strategy for every state in America, that's 50 states, and for every large city in America, okay? That's how relentless these people are. So we have to detect what they are doing and then eradicate it. Final thing we have to do is, I call it disentangle. Some people call it decouple, okay? I think Colby's denial, strategy of denial is very important. So for instance, what the Commerce Department did and say no more tool, chip tool making equipment can be exported to China is very important. Deny them that capability. And I think that's going to really hurt them as long as we don't get waivers. And I'm always worried about us putting on strong sanctions and then giving waivers. 
We have a history of doing that, but we need to do the denial. We need to, the constrainment is basically, I am strongly of the belief that if we have an official government finding that we are in a cold war with China, that it is much, much harder for boards of directors to approve new investments into China. And I think when the new investments into China stop, then the exodus from China will accelerate. The good news is, Jay, a lot of companies are already accelerating from China, but the last thing you want to do is, is put out press releases that you're doing it. Because the more you talk about it, the more the Chinese are going to um, obstruct you from achieving your, your goal. But for instance, Japan in the last three years had 960 or 980 companies that have completely pulled out of China. Wow. It's, some are small. Okay. But it's the other thing that's very important to understand is people who live in the neighborhood are not investing more in, uh, in mainland China. South Korea, a few years ago, made all of its telephones in the mainland and no longer Samsung has pulled it all out. Okay. So I think we need to do all of the above. And now what is the cost? The cost will be high. I don't know how high, but if I look at the first Cold War, our cost of defense was 7% of GDP. Today, we're spending about 3.5% on GDP. And I'm not saying that we should invest a lot more in defense. I'm not a defense expert. I'm not an expert in anything as I started off this, this interview. Uh, but basically, let's suffice it to say I wouldn't, I wouldn't increase defense. But there are lots of other costs we have to bear. So for instance, take the Green New Deal. Let's assume that we all agree that we have to, to do something about climate. I don't agree, but let's assume that we, we, we have to, to do that. Our chosen method to do this is to make us much poorer and China much richer. What we have to do is bear the cost of extracting the rare minerals, rare earth minerals from the dirt. Do you know that we mine some of that rare earth in America, send it over for extraction to China and then bring it back? Why do we do that? Because the process of cleaning it up is environmentally so terrible that if we did it responsibly in the U.S., the cost would be astronomical. Well, if we, if we want to have everything driving on a battery, we should be willing to bear that cost and do it here and not be dependent on our enemy and make him richer. Okay. So, so basically, is that going to be another 3.5% of GDP? Maybe more. But compared to where we're going to be if China actually dominates the world, ask any of those 160 countries where China has a Belt and Road Initiative how happy they are with the Chinese influence. And I doubt that you're going to get a dozen who like it. Your point is, um, is very well taken that we can't afford, whatever the costs are, we can't afford to lose the battle. In, in Cold War I, uh, our, there was a national unity. There was a very broad recognition that uh, we were at risk, our way of life was at risk, and we had to defend it. So far, even though people are becoming more and more concerned at the margin with China and the role of China in the world and techniques used by China, like the recent publication of the fact that China, China operates a um, uh, hundred police stations in different countries around the world, including in the U.S., that forcibly repatriate citizens. So we, we know we, we get a, an increasing sense for what life under uh, uh, Chinese leadership would look like. But how do we develop a national will and a national unity to take on the problem and accept these costs, these short-term costs? Uh, <laughs> get fools like me to go around the country and educate people. Um, that's really, uh, we, I think an informed public will accept. You know, your, your viewers and listeners to this podcast, I would love to hear from them where factually I'm wrong. Okay. Basically, all the things that China is doing can be documented. 
for instance, forced organ harvesting. I mean, the documentation, the, the proof that they're doing that is overwhelming. You can call up a hospital in China and get an, make an appointment for a new heart and be seen within two weeks. I mean, ridiculous. So basically, we have to educate our people. We also have to educate our congressmen, our representatives. I actually find, Jay, because, you know, I'm, I'm on a mission here. You know, I, 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 I love the opportunity you're giving me here to talk about this. But I, I, I've started to reach out to Congress people. They all get it more and more. OK. And if you look actually at some of the laws that have been passed to, for instance, put sanctions, go back to the Nord Stream 2, the, the gas pipeline before the invasion of, of Ukraine. There was a gas pipeline called Gazprom from Russia to, to Germany. We felt it should be sanctioned. The sanction law garnered, I think, 500 out of 535 votes in, in Congress. So our Congress, I think, is very much aware of the dangers, at least of the Russians and probably of the Chinese. I think that our, our leaders are very reluctant to call a Cold War a Cold War. And as a matter of fact, Secretary Blinken said, well, we don't seek a cold war. Well, Ukraine didn't seek a hot war, okay? But it, the hot war found Ukraine and the cold war found us a long time ago, probably at the time of the publishing of unrestricted warfare. So what we, there will be, I don't know what it is. FDR knew that he had to get America ready to enter World War II, but couldn't, the moment came when, unfortunately, 3,000 people died in Hawaii, okay? I don't know what's going to be the triggering event for our government to feel it can, at the executive level, step up and say, we're in a Cold War and we got to fight this and we got to do what it takes. But that moment, unfortunately, is going to come. It may be the moment that Taiwan gets invaded. Which, which raises the question of what are the, what are the chances that the Cold War doesn't stay cold? Uh, that it becomes hot. What does that look like? What, what, what would the Chinese do to hobble us uh, if it shades over into a hot war? Uh, and you, you see kind of weird, weird things happening like sniper attacks on electrical substations and refinery fires, you know, various failures to infrastructure, which already make one think that um, they're not, obviously they're not accidents and you wonder who's behind them. But what does it look like if the Cold War doesn't stay cold? Well, we have to use our imagination, uh, but it doesn't take a lot of imagination. It could get ugly. I do believe, however, the war on Ukraine has shown that basically nuclear weapons are at best a defensive weapon, not an offensive weapon. Okay, And I really... If you actually read Unrestricted Warfare, what they say about the use of nukes, they're totally against it. You know, one thing I haven't mentioned, I know you know it, but for your listeners, China cannot exist without trade. Okay. And so basically, if, if, if China were to use a nuke on, whether that is on Japan or on the US or anywhere, forget about trade. Okay. The Chinese can't heat themselves and they can't feed themselves. So basically, I don't think it's going to become a hot war with nukes. Now, will they sink some, some of our vessels, some of our Navy, etc.? That's entirely possible. But the more they do it, the more resolve the American people will have to, to basically stop doing any business with China as quickly as they can. And if it means that we lose Apple products, we, we lose Apple products. And so basically, ultimately, the economic pain on China that can be inflicted will be much more meaningful than the economic pain pain we could inflict on Russia. Russia, all during the Cold War and even today, is a country that can heat itself and feed itself. And you've seen that our and and we were so dependent on a very critical, i.e., hydrocarbons from Russia, that that we continued for a long time to finance this, the Russians to fight against basically the West. I mean, the U Ukraine is, is in the middle of it, but it's, there's a proxy war here. It didn't start as a proxy war, but it's become one.
So basically, I think that uh, the pain we can inflict economically on, on the Chinese will be enormous. Then they'll inflict more pain on us. I don't see the Chinese maybe sabotage of electric grids, hospitals, and things like that. But I don't see the Chinese have no capability of of coming across the Pacific and and and, and harm us that way. They can do it with missiles, but that's dangerous. We have missiles too. So ironically, I think it will be very messy, very bloody, but there will be self-constraint on, 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 there should be self-constraint. Now, what worries me tremendously with the new political lineup in China is that, as you know, Xi Jinping is one of seven people on the what's called the standing committee of the Politburo. He replaced a lot of people on the standing committee and he replaced all people who were very good economic thinkers, some of whom who had been trained in our best universities in, in capitalist economics. And he's replaced them with, with people who think very differently. And so I don't know whether he, his immediate circle of advisors are going to um, have the ability to warn him of the economic catastrophe that will follow if he starts a hot war. Willem, it's um, what you're doing is uh, in educating people, all of all of us who um, don't follow China day to day, don't follow these strategies and relationships, educating our uh, elected leaders as to the risks and the nature of the uh, unrestricted warfare that's been leveled against us. If if you if you're going to frame it succinctly, and we don't have to be that succinct, but if you're going to give the man on the street, I include myself in that, a simple framework for thinking about the problem, what would you say? We are facing an adversary who wishes us ill. And the dumbest thing we're doing is we're helping our adversary achieving its goals. And sadly, it's a repeat of history. In the late 1930s, between the UK and the US, in today's dollars, trillions of dollars were invested in Germany. We gave Germany the technologies that they needed to do invasions, such as synthetic rubber, synthetic fuel, um, better explosives. And the two, Germany only had two tank manufacturers. One was owned by Ford Motor Company and one by General Motors. Okay. And we are repeating this stupidity because we think we thought then Nazi Germany was prosperous compared to the rest of the world and was growing again. And we were still in our depression. And so we thought that was a good, good thing to do. And now what we have to do is we have to look back and say those people were atrocious. And by the way, Hitler wrote Mein Kampf. That was his unrestricted warfare um, equivalent. And uh, he gave plenty of speeches and plenty of propaganda and he had plenty of writers. And by the way, we had a very competent ambassador in Berlin from 34 to 38 who sent cables every day to Washington explaining everything that was going on in Germany, including, including the killing of lots of Jews. Okay. And we didn't take it seriously. And so now, please, men on the street, believe your own ears, your own eyes, and accept the fact that maybe some things are going to get more expensive because we're going to stop buying them from China. But we have to stop this foolishness of strengthening our enemy. Willem, it's a heavy, heavy topic uh, and a frightening prospect. Is there, and I'll press it, you know, preface this question with the remark that you don't have to find anything to be optimistic about, but is there anything you're optimistic about in this whole sphere of our relations with China and China's relations with us and with the rest of the world? Yes, I think my hunch is that even members of the CCP wish they were in America. <laughs> okay. And what we have to do is make it very clear we are not against the Chinese people. We're not even against the rank and file of the CCP. If I were a young man in China, I'd become a member of the Communist Party because it's the only way I could make progress. Okay. It's not because you believe in their ideology. And we are against the tyrants who run them. And if you see the courage they are displaying today, 
with uh, the lockdown protests. We should do much more to help them communicate amongst one another. I don't know if Starlinks is the is the way around their so-called internet firewall, but there are things we can do and should be doing and have to think about doing. And we should continuously uh, get messages to the Chinese people that it's not against them, we love them. And at one point in time, this may be the most totalitarian controlled regime ever, but nevertheless, to control 1.4 billion people is, 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 is not that easy. And basically, um, I think that if we play our cards right, we're going to win Cold War II just the way we did Cold War I. Villain de Vogel, thank you for doing this. Thank you for what you're doing to really um, get the story out in detail and with passion. Uh, because it's it's so important. This creeping awareness needs to be an awareness that's really much better informed and much more based on on facts. Uh, and you're doing that. And thank you for that. Well, thank you for listening. And thank you for the opportunity. And I hope the American people will, will come around to this. Thank you very much for, for joining us today. Uh, it's been my pleasure to speak with Willem de Vogel, the chairman of the Jamestown Foundation. If you enjoyed this episode, Please let your friends know.